Welcome into another edition of the Duck Territory Podcast. I'm Matt Frame. Eric Scopel is across the way. Hello, hello. Uh, lots to get to uh, in this week's podcast. We're going to discuss some Oregon football recruiting news. The Ducks landed two verbal commitments uh, from two players from Deep South. Uh, we'll, we'll give our takes on that as well and kind of where Oregon goes from here. Official visit weekend starting back up again. Um we're also going to discuss Oregon basketball and kind of where the Ducks are at going into an important Thursday night game at home against the conference leader in Washington. Uh, and then we'll also discuss some of the news that's now starting to come out out of uh, Washington State and Oregon. Uh, it looks like Oregon reportedly has hired Ken Wilson away uh, from Washington State to coach Oregon's outside linebackers, Ken Wilson uh, spent the last couple seasons with the with the Cougars, and then before that, uh, coached at Nevada. And the tie here is is look, Mario Cristobal usually makes his hires with connections, and he hired uh, Jim Mastro because of in part the recommendation from outside sources, and also from Joe Salave at Washington State. And uh, Joe Sal now he's hired. Uh, Ken Wilson, and I'm sure he's had vetting processes with Jim Mastro and Joe Salvea about Ken Wilson. So, first of all, usually his hires, you go and look at the people he's hired, there's some kind of a connection. You know, six degrees of whatever you want to find it. He's connected to that person in some capacity. And it looks like uh, Bruce Feldman of The Athletic is the one that reported that first. Uh, very reliable, by the very way. Very reliable. It looks like that's... Um, the direction that Mario Cristobal is going. And, you know, we'll be frank. We started this podcast as this news hit. It just happens to happen more often than not now when we do these podcasts. Um, so we're still learning more information about him. But overall, I think it's a pretty solid hire. Just And really quickly, looking through him as a recruiter, he was the highest-rated recruiter at Washington State last year, the third highest the year before. So clearly that's something he does bring to it. And to be, to be frank, you know, it, replacing Court Dennison in terms of his recruiting would be difficult regardless. Right. And this is still a staff defensively, though, that with Dante Williams and Keith Hayward will recruit at a very high level. We've seen no drop-off since uh, Dennison uh, took off. And obviously, I don't think anyone expects that there will be any losses of signees or commitments with Dennison going. But um, certainly an interesting hire. And as we said, third straight year, Oregon has gone to Pullman and, and added an assistant coach from that team. Um, that's a program that obviously has had a ton of success against Oregon of late. <clears throat> I think, what is it, four straight years now that they've won um, games against Oregon. So makes sense you go that direction. I think, honestly, it's in, and the timing of it's pretty good. You know, Not that Oregon really needs to go out there and add anybody in this cycle, but at least you now have a, a complete staff with a couple weeks before signing day. Um, of note, from an individual standpoint, Washington State did have a couple players that were linebackers make – uh, All-conference honors. There were honorable mention players. Uh, Peyton Puler, grad transfer out linebacker, and then also uh, Jahad Woods, uh, redshirt sophomore linebacker from Washington State, both made uh, the honorable mention team. And um, you look at, like you said, from a recruiting standpoint, this is Washington State's best recruiter. Yeah. And typically, you know, Mario Cristobal values recruiting and skill development, like any coach would, but. I think he has a, a high demand of trying to find guys that can develop and also have the ability to to recruit at a high level. And while Ken Wilson at his time at 
at least in the 24-7 sports composite recruiting rankings, he doesn't have a single guy that's ranked as a four-star prospect currently committed to him. But he has a lot of three-star guys, and he's and he's shown the ability to recruit offense and, and to recruit defense. And you look at the guys that he has been pr- the primarily recruiter for, almost every single one of these guys is from California or from Hawaii. And then there's a couple guys that are mixed in there from other places. But this is a... This is a, a guy that his ties are in Southern California, are in Northern California. And Oregon made a, a killing in California this past season uh, for the 2019 recruiting class, going in and signing multiple, you know, over half the class, I think, right. was from Southern California. And in a time when UCLA and USC are down and Arizona State is kind of still meddling around, are they – Going to break out or are they going to fall down? Sure. Arizona is down right now. Uh, California is kind of on the upswing. Stanford is kind of meddling where they're, you know, just a level below being the conference's elite teams. You have an opportunity to go into California and clean up and do extremely well. Really, just a small piece of context on the recruiting for Washington State. Washington State has 15 four-star recruits all time, so it's not like they pulled in a bunch of four-stars and he's right. not been the one responsible. Just a quick aside there, but yeah, I agree. And, and, and we've already seen in the 2019 class, obviously, a ton of success in Southern California. In 2020, it appears that will be the case as well. Oregon, um, known to be one of the favorites for a bunch of top recruits, uh, a couple of which have been visiting over the last couple of weeks here. So, certainly an interesting uh, signing, and I'm sure we'll get... A little bit more of that picture, a little more clarity from Coach Cristobal when he speaks with media in, what, about two and a half weeks for signing day. And that's kind of one of the most important things was they needed to hire some, you know, they've got an outside linebackers coach hire, and and there was some discussion about maybe hiring an offensive guy instead and letting Levitt uh, coach the entire linebackers, but obviously the defensive side looks like to have won out in that one. Um, They also need to hire a recruiting coordinator, They've also uh, got to go out and they're adding a fifth strength and conditioning coach to the football program, uh, and so they're they're vetting names there. To and look, this is I, Crystal Ball is doing exactly what what Nick Saban did at at Alabama, um, because they also need to go out and hire a new analyst because Rod Chance left to become the defensive backs coach at Minnesota, um, and we should talk about that as well. But every year. Saban found a way, you know, to round up a little bit more money and go out and hire another staff member or, you know, two or two or three new staff members. And that's what Crystal Ball is starting to do. He got Oregon strength staff bolstered up when he got hired by, you know, getting four full-time guys. And uh, Matthew Fail, uh, Aaron Fell, who's the, who's the head of the strength coach, uh, Mark Davis and Sherrod Williams. And now they're going out and one year later – we got we got it to four. Now we're gonna we want to expand it to five. We want five guys now helping our strength team. Uh, we want to go from having four analysts to maybe having five analysts. Uh, we want to go from having um, you know one recruiting director to maybe having a recruiting director and two or three other guys uh, helping in recruiting. And so Oregon staff is slowly building up a little bit and and building um, what you know. Building a, a, a roster of, of staff on and off the field that just 
keeps the program working around the clock. And I think you're going to continue to see this because the reality of, of coaching, and you see this if you follow all the big programs, is that, yeah, you're, you're going to lose these top coaches at some point. Court Dennison went and, and took a you know positional and financial upgrade at Louisville. Um, you know, Stephen Field wanted to get back closer to his family, but you're going to see top people leave just because that's the way things go. And, you know, I think I'm sure Cristobal has a list of contingency options for yeah. every single position on yep. the staff. And, and I'm sure Wilson was one of the guys that was mentioned highly on that prior yeah. to, you know, the finalizing kind of this decision here. Uh, shifting gears a little bit towards the football or to the basketball side of things now. Um, Oregon's currently what? Two and three in Pac-12 play. Correct. Uh, they are just outside of, I believe, sixth place in the season. I think they're eighth right now. Um, we will look that up. We should definitely have that information on us. Yeah, they are currently eighth in the Pac-12 standings. But that being said, you know, Utah, USC are just one game ahead of them. They have a tiebreaker over USC. They play Utah next week. Uh, UCLA and Oregon State are also one game up. On Oregon, so theoretically, I mean, in two weeks, if Oregon wins this week against Washington on Thursday, Sunday against Washington State, and then they go to the Mountain Schools and they beat Utah and they beat Colorado, which isn't would be Colorado has literally never happened since yes. Alvin's been here in Colorado. Correct. We should mention. We should mention that. But best case scenario, you know, they win their next four games, and we should mention that Colorado is one and four in conference play. Not They're just good. ten and seven. Utah's three and two and just nine and eight in conference play. So, while it's difficult, you know, for Oregon, I don't think there's any game on the schedule outside of maybe Washington State and California that you can literally say Oregon should have their, you know, they should be able to handle them with ease. Every other team, all nine other opponents in the conference could beat Oregon. Utah and Colorado are not, they're not juggernauts like a Washington or an Arizona or an Arizona State or a UCLA in talent or a USC in talent. I, mean, I would just say there aren't any juggernauts in the conference. True, though. I true. mean, there's just not a team. You look at the schedule, and I'm just like, I'm not. You're not. I don't think you're afraid of anyone on the schedule. Exactly. Or even can get hot and win every game. And that's what and that's what I'm trying to get to is that as you know, difficult it's going to be. At the same time, it's also very realistic that they could go four and zero in their next four. Sure. And next thing you know, they're two games out of first place, or they're one and a half games out of first place, or they're in a and a two-way tie for third, and they've got the, the tiebreaker. Um, this this season is going to be frustrating, I think, from fans, from coaches' perspective, because of they didn't the, the league as itself didn't do a very good job of winning the non-conference games that they needed to win to strengthen the the, the league. But at the same time, it's also got to be pretty relieving to know there's not that one team that's better than everybody else, and if you just can get hot. You can string some wins and put yourself in the top two of this conference. I mean, I'm just looking through the schedule here, and again, I, I think the thing that stands out watching this conference is that, like, I really don't, like I said, I don't think there's a juggernaut. I don't know if anybody's in much that much better than anybody else. I do think there are a couple teams in Washington State and Cal, maybe Colorado ends up being in that same kind of tier that are significantly worse. But I look at Oregon's upcoming schedule. Hosting Washington, who's currently unbeaten in conference, is a very that's going to be a tough task. If they win that game, that's a bunch of momentum. They should be Washington stay at home. Utah and Colorado, those are winnable games. Cal and Stanford at home, that's probably the easiest home stretch. That's the easiest probably back-to-back home game yeah. of the season. And then they go to Oregon State at USC, UCLA. That gets tough. Then they host Arizona, Arizona State, and they finish against Washington State and Washington. So this next six-game stretch here to really me is, 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 is the easiest portion of the schedule. It's crucial if they're able to 
now that they're fully healthy, uh, to figure things out. If they go like 6-0 and or 5-1 and over these next six games, you look up and all of a sudden Oregon is right back in the middle of that conference hunt. And because I do think Washington, if Oregon beats them, that would knock them back. I don't think there's anybody up there that's going to end up being like 16-2 and this year. This is going to be a league that's probably won at 14-4, and 13-5. And, and I think Oregon's capable of getting in that realm. And we should probably talk about the shortcomings over the weekend and kind of expand on that. But Real quick, I, I, I mean, Washington, Washington State, Utah, Colorado, California, one of those teams has more than 10 wins. I mean, I mean, I, I, that yeah. just tells you where you're at right yeah. now. And, yeah, that, that, there's a really bad league. I mean, you're, it's a bad league, and this is, gonna, like you said, an incredibly soft part of the schedule to, to string some games together, get six straight wins. If you can beat Washington on Thursday, you should be favored in every other game moving forward. And I bet you they will be favored on Thursday against the Huskies. Uh, I, I bet you it'll be like a one-and-a-half point favorite for, for Oregon. Um but going backwards now and talking about what happened at Oregon or what happened for Oregon in the desert, they go to Arizona on Thursday and they win that one 59-54. Uh, third time in the last, I think, five years or six years, Dana Altman has gone into Arizona and won. Uh, he's got the highest winning percentage outside of Mike Hopkins against the Huskies, against the Wildcats. Uh, Hopkins has been there like And Hopkins years. has been there one year. Yeah. He's be, he's played them once, and he's won once. So he kind of – Small sample size. Small sample size. <laughs> uh, or Altman, meanwhile, is 8-8 eight and eight against Sean Miller and the Wildcats. Uh, and he's now won five of the last seven games against Arizona. Um, and that's the school that – when he showed up and he hired his staff, that they looked at the, the conference and they said, that's the, the program we have to compete against. That's the conference that we have to build our program to, to beat because if, if we want to win this league, we need to beat Arizona. And they're starting to do that more than they are losing to the Wildcats, which is a good sign. Problem was is they went to Arizona State on Saturday night and they, for the most part, looked like they had control, looked like they were going to win and with about, what, seven minutes to go? Eight, eight and a half. Eight and a half minutes mm-hmm. to go in the game. They were up four. And then all of a sudden, they just forgot how to play basketball, really, for about five minutes. And next thing they knew, they gave up a 19 to nothing run. It was a really ugly stretch of basketball. I'm searching for this because I know I put this out there a couple of days ago. I, I, I think Arizona State was, yeah, there were seven of eight from the field during that stretch and three for three from three. Oregon was 0 for 7 and 0 for 3 for 3 with a turnover in that stretch. So basically, Arizona State couldn't miss. And I should mention Arizona State also hit three free throws. Arizona State couldn't miss basically for four minutes. Oregon couldn't make anything. And, and a game which really did feel like it was going to come down to the last couple minutes, down to the wire, suddenly is like a 16-point game with four minutes to play. And at that point, the game is basically over. The way Oregon was playing offensively in that game, I think they shot, what, just about 30% for the game. Um, you knew they weren't going to make a run at it late there. And this was a frustrating game, though, because, like I said, I think Oregon actually played pretty confidently for the most part that game. Offensively, things didn't really, you know, they kind of lost their, their their sense of identity there. I think the, we should mention Paul White, who has been He's the real deal. The real deal. <laughs> Inside joke. Uh, Paul White has been the real deal. And, and just a shocking development of how well he's been playing over the first uh, five conference games. He missed about a four-minute stretch in the second half with an ankle injury, came back. I don't even think he made another field goal. Um, that, to me, was a turning point that no one's really talking about because he, to that point, he had 12 points at the half. He was clearly their top offensive option. I think he was like four for four from the field at the half. 
He ends up being like 0 for 5 in the second half. Does not play very well. And I think that ultimately plays into it because if he's not an option offensively, now you have basically Peyton Pritchard and Luke King as the options. And not that those guys can't score because those guys are both capable, but neither guy shot at a very high level. And it ended up being a lot of contested, difficult, like fadeaway jump shots or threes, et cetera, et cetera. And we should also mention the third top-leading score in conference play, Victor Bailey, was 0 for 9 from the field. So basically nothing was working right um, for a portion of that game offensively. Um, and credit to Arizona State for really taking advantage of it. Uh, that was, I think, I think it's going to be a fun return game because you could tell, based kind of the way the game played, these teams don't like each other very much. And, <laughs> it, and, yeah. it's, and it's going to be, I think, kind of like a strange heated rivalry. And I think that's just the way it works when you have a coach like Bobby, Bobby Hurley, who's sort of embodies that same kind of tough guy I, attitude. I love how Bobby Hurley believes that because he puts his hands behind his back and interlocks them. Uh, he can then lean into a referee and just spew anything that he wants to say and scream about into a referee's ear and not get a technical. Obviously, he didn't get one against or against Oregon, but I just find it hilarious. How, I don't, and I don't, well, I mean, if you watch him, I don't know how he. You know, the rules are different for some people. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if, if Dan Altman operated the same way for forty minutes like that, he'd get. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe not. It's just it's interesting watching how he handles himself compared to the other coaches in the conference. I've been tracking this for a little bit, and I haven't updated. Uh, the stats here for a little bit. And I think this is something that we need to, to maybe discuss a little bit. Um, and that's Peyton Pritchard because against Arizona State, he kind of got out of a scoring slump. He, he went over a five game period. He had just one game in double figures. That was Oregon State when he shot five of 16. He had 14 points in that one, six assists. Uh, he did have three turnovers in that game against Arizona State, five of 12. So just a little bit better for shooting performance, but he was four of nine on three pointers. You know, and before that, he had made just six three pointers, uh, and over 32 attempts, I think it was. Just really, really poor shooting from three. And he, he hit four of nine against ASU. So maybe he kind of got out of that slump. He had four assists. He had six rebounds. Uh, he had three steals. Um, he had three turnovers, though. But I think this is a case where he, he kind of got out of, of a funk a little bit in that one. And you, you hope that that maybe gets him going moving forward. But I think this team and this program, they need to go away from leaning on Peyton being your number one scoring option on a night-to-night basis. Um, and even I even think maybe your second scoring option from a night-to-night basis because uh, I updated the numbers before the, the, the Arizona games. Okay. Um, in 90 career games, Oregon is 19-16 and 16 with Peyton Pritchard shooting 10 or more shots. Uh, and those 90 career games, Oregon is 47 and 7 when he shoots 9 or less. Now, a lot of that, you could argue, came could, during his you, freshman you year. Can, actually, you can improve that to 45 and 18, I believe. 45 and 18? Yeah, because he shot 9 in the win and shot 12 in the loss. 45 and 8? Or 8, sorry. Yeah, I missed the first time, but yeah. Um, and so, I argue, you, you, you could argue that Okay, those numbers are drastically different because of his freshman year. He wasn't the focal point, yada, yada, yada. Well, let's look at the last year and a half when it's been Peyton Pritchard and everybody else. And Oregon is 19 and 16 with with Peyton Pritchard shooting 10 or more shots. So that's, I believe, 19 and 17 17 now. Uh, Last season and this year, Oregon is 16 and 3. Or, yeah, 16 and 3. 17 and 3. 
No, no. I, I did the, I did the math. Yeah. So 16 and 3 when they shoot nine or more, he shoots nine or less shots. And that's, and look, I'm not saying that Pritchard can't shoot. You can't run sets for him. I think he's a guy, he's hands down one of the best ball handlers I've seen. Mm -hmm. He's hands down very, very good at getting himself open or getting a look for somebody else. But it requires him to dribble the basketball an excessive amount of dribbles. And I think you can get the same type of production from him, and he'd be much more efficient if you run him off screens and you know send him on cuts and make him a spot-up shooter on the wing and have someone else kind of distribute and create and have the ball, you know, don't touch the floor and swing from side to side really quickly and get the defense having to, you know, shift their you know their defenses more than twice because that's how you get open looks. Um, I just think that there's a correlation between Oregon having some of their best offense when Paul White and Lewis King have the ball run through them, and then you have Victor Bailey and you have Peyton Pritchard on, spot ups. as spot-up shooters when defense suffocates into to those two guys in the, in the mid-range game. I think those are great points, and I think – I really do think the game against Arizona State, that four-minute stretch, really kind of encapsulates that because, like I said, Paul White was not an offensive option. Lewis King struggled in that game. He was six for 18 from the three field, three for eight from three. I think he made two threes in the final couple minutes to kind of bolster that number. And Victor Bailey, like we said, he was 0 for 9. He wasn't a threat. So you have basically White, who's not playing at 100%, King, who maybe is a little gun-shy because he's not shooting very well, and Bailey, the same thing. Peyton Pritchard's the only guy who's really confident, and I don't think he necessarily forced a ton of shots during that stretch. I have to go back and look. I think he only took two field goal attempts out of seven. But point is, when he is asked to become that guy, that's problematic. And uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think he can be a shot maker. I don't Him scoring 20 points, that shouldn't shock anybody. But when the offense is tailored through him and catered to him, I do think that's where you run into problems. And when he's asked to do too much, like he was on Saturday – where Lewis King is 6 for 18, Paul White is 4 for 10, Victor Bay is 0 for 9, Will Richardson's 2 for 7, Ehab Amin's 1 for 4. Basically, no one's having a good offensive right. game besides him. That That's where he's forced into a situation that probably doesn't fit his skill set, which yeah. is to distribute and kind of stand off in the corner. And that's where this team needs to figure things out. Because, look, I, I think Peyton could be a, a guy that could score 20 a game, but I don't know if that's necessarily good for the long-term success of this program uh, if you want to win games. Um, and I know that they've, you know, they have made a concerted effort before this week of going in and, and sharing the ball and, 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 you know, pushing and putting a stronger emphasis on the, uh, ball movement and, you know, not having the ball touch the ground, you know, don't do a needless dribble essentially. Um, and that helped against Arizona, that helped against USC, that helped against UCLA, uh, and it just didn't, you know, it worked for the first half against ASU. And then when Paul White got hurt, he had a mean picked up his fourth foul. Victor Bailey Jr. was having a bad game. Oregon had to do something. They had to look, they had to go somewhere and they went to Pritchard. And then, and I'm not trying to put the loss entirely on Pritchard because he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He's trying to pick up the slack and you aren't going to win a lot of games when Paul White and Victor Bailey Jr. and you have a mean are all playing bad. And you basically, and Kenny Wooten is a non-factor. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was another thing. Um, <clears throat> so that being said, I think, look, I sound like a broken record, but I, Oregon's still not out of this race. No. It gets harder with each conference loss. They now have three. I, I, I think if you want to win the league, 
you're going to have to win. You're going to have to, you know, I think 15 and three, 14 and four, maybe 13 and five gets it, it gets you the, the regular <coughs> season championship. Yeah. So Oregon's margin of error of finishing first is getting smaller. That being said, you know, it's still completely open for them to finish second or, or finish third in the conference. And quite honestly, that's what you want. You want, if you can't finish first, you want to, you want to finish second or you want to finish third. You know, obviously fourth would be great too, but fourth, it, it gets difficult because you have to play the fifth best team and then you have to play the first place team if you win that one. And, and you know, well, this is a league where who's the first best team that good is the question. True. That's true. And, and, and we should mention <laughs> that if, if the goal is just to be a top four seed, Oregon's one game out right now. Yeah. And, and we should mention they've lost three games. All of them have really been games that felt winnable in the last 10 minutes. Obviously, Arizona State game, you look at the final score and it's like, oh, they got lost by 14. They got beaten pretty bad. But like we've established, it was a pretty close game. UCLA game, we don't necessarily want to relive and rehash those details, but that's a game Oregon should have certainly won. And Oregon State, Oregon had a couple of looks at the end of the game to, to try to uh, to take a late lead and, and try to shock Oregon State after they've been down, I think, by 18 points. So <clears throat> certainly uh, this is not a team that is proven they can't play with anybody. I think all five games they've played, they've proven they can play with that team. Now it's a matter of finishing up some of these games. And uh, you just kind of look ab- above Oregon in the standings. I think Oregon can beat every one of these teams, and they're going to get an opportunity now against Washington, who has kind of gone from – uh, you know, with Lorenzo Romar there, there was some really re- kind of lean years to Mike Hopkins has done a great job in two seasons. And it's worth mentioning, if you look at who Washington has played so far, and again, I don't know who's good and bad in the conference, but they've beaten Washington State, who I don't think we think Not is very, very good. good. Utah and Colorado, who we don't think are very good. And then Stanford and Cal, who we don't think are very good. Oregon's probably the first good team that they'll play. Can we define if Oregon is a good team, though? Well, okay, and that's true, too. But I think Oregon is probably the most competitive team yes. that they'll have played to this point. You might be able to argue that Utah or Stanford are in that same conversation, but Washington State, Colorado, and Cal right now have a combined, what, two wins in conference play, and those are all against each other. So, I mean, yeah. it's not like this is a Washington team that's just been out there beating up Arizona's and the L.A. schools. They haven't played those schools yet. In fact, they're about to start a stretch where they play those schools back-to-back-to-back-to-back. And that's so, why I said that the next, the next three weeks could really decide if Oregon finishes in one, two, three, or, or if they can finish seven, eight, nine. You can see Oregon run the table here the next three weekends. Washington plays a really tough schedule. Some of these teams beat each other up. You look up, all of a sudden, Oregon is eight and three, and Washington is the same record, and all of a sudden, it's anyone's game with seven or eight games to play. So, certainly not over if you look at the conference standings, and I still think certainly some positive things to take away um, from the weekend in Arizona. Ducks don't, not a lot of teams are able to go in and get a sweep there, much less to split. So, that's a successful weekend. Obviously, Oregon State went in and lost both games. <clears throat> Shifting gears a little bit towards recruiting to wrap things up here. Um, Oregon landed two verbal commitments this past Monday. So we're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Martin Luther King Day, the Ducks went in and, and landed two guys that were um, on campus for official visits. Uh, that's three-star uh, safety DJ Hall, or, yeah, DJ Hall, Jamal Hall, Hall, and then DJ James. For some reason, I had both those guys just swapped. Uh, Jamal Hall, three-star safety from Murrow, Georgia, and then also DJ James, a three-star quarterback from Spanish Fort, Alabama. Um, I think these are two guys that – we also should mention that they landed Logan Sagapalo, a three-star center from the weekend as well. So three 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 commitments in three days – Two being on on Monday, one being late Saturday night in Hawaii. Um, that puts Oregon at 26 verbal commitments, but Logan Sagapalu is planning to take a two-year Mormon mission. Um, 
out of high school, so he will not enroll at Oregon until 2021. So he's basically, if you're a recruit, Nick, and you love team rankings and competing, he's like the best case scenario because he counts towards your points, increases your ranking, but at the same time doesn't hurt you in terms of spots. And it's basically free points because he's not going to enroll I'm waiting for a class to just be all five stars. That like, yeah, this class is awesome, but eight, top eight guys aren't even coming to this team for like two years. Uh, but let's Jamal Hill. This is a guy, a safety that I like. All these guys, by the yeah, way, I really do. I, I think Jamal Hill is when he gets to Oregon, and he's going to need some time to develop and, and to um, work on his skills a little bit. But when he figures things out, he might be one of the most underrated guys in this class because the plays that he's made in his highlight film are pretty, pretty good. Same thing with DJ James. I like both of these defensive backs. And, you know, Logan uh, Sagapolu, it's harder to kind of break down the exciting plays on offensive line play because it's basically him just shoving a guy over and falling on him, which is fun to watch. But, uh, yeah, Jamal Hill and DJ James, though, these are playmakers. And Oregon needed some depth in the secondary. We talked about it. Um, you know, back in December when they only landed or only signed two defensive backs after Jeremiah Criddle kind of flipped last minute to Oklahoma. I think this, I don't want to say it makes up for it, but these are great additions. I think Jamal Hill is a very physical, strong safety. He's a guy who honestly, you could see him like maybe playing kind of that duck linebacker role at some point just with how he moves and how aggressive he is tracking the football. Um, you don't see it watching this film. You don't see a ton of coverage in it. You don't, I don't think he had a single interception, at least not on the tape I watched. Um, so that's not necessarily a strong suit, but you pair him next to a guy like Javon Holland or Tricoise yeah. Bridges, who are great ball hawks out there, and he's kind of that perfect complementary piece. And then DJ James, that guy that guy makes a ton of plays. I mean, yeah. the first two and a half minutes of his tape are interceptions or crazy plays. He had, he had one of the most impressive uh, strips of a football I've ever seen, where it literally looks like he was the quarterback on the option thing. He just kind of ran through and stole the ball <laughs> from the guy and ran it for a touchdown. I think both these guys are, are, are really nice additions, and... Again, because of depth at, at defensive back, they both have a chance to at least, I think, see the field pretty early. Um, uh, and you like the size with DJ James at six foot one seventy. Obviously, you like to see him add some weight, but these are pretty big defensive backs, which obviously are never bad things. So, yeah, I agree. Two nice pieces. Also, doesn't hurt that you're dipping into Georgia and Alabama to get them. That's two players, yeah. by the way, from Alabama in the same class, which I don't know the last time that happened, but with Cristobal, obviously, with his ties there, you think that might be kind of a trend. Yeah, Oregon's recruiting class now – um, by state, the second most familiar state for Oregon is Florida. Yeah. They have... Really funny looking down at it, actually. Yeah, yeah they, have, they have 11 guys from California, 11 out of their 26 verbal commit, 25 verbal commitments, I should say. Uh, and then three of those guys are from, from Florida. Josh Delgado is one of them, so he's kind of a California guy. Sure, too. sure. And then Alabama is second with Nevada. Um, and then Colorado, Georgia, North Carolina, Oregon, Tennessee, Utah, and Washington uh, all fall in here uh, with one guy as well. So um, I, I think what's next for Oregon, they've only got probably two, maybe maybe three spots left. Yeah. Because uh, theoretically, they're already over the scholarship number. They uh, are not in a position where um, they can go out and just, you know, Everyone says, oh, this is a must-take guy. That's a must-take guy. Well, at some point, you run out of spots, and you literally can't <laughs> take the guy. You can't take them. And Oregon is essentially there. They've only got maybe one to three more spots available, and they've probably got 15 or so guys on the table in various different positions. Um, probably the one glaring spot, I think, 
that you need to figure out is defensive line. Um, I think you could argue inside linebacker could be another one. Uh, but that being said, I think you have some pieces either coming in or coming back next season that have playing experience or redshirted that yeah. give you some thought of there's some potential there. I don't know if you can say that about the defensive line because they have Jordan Scott, and in theory, this could be you know 2019 could be his last year at Oregon if he decides he wants to go to the NFL. How realistic that is, I don't know. Right. But Jordan Scott could go pro. You haven't been able to figure out who's his backup at nose guard the last two seasons. Uh, we thought it was going to be maybe Popo Lamave, but he didn't really play much this season. They rotated Gary Baker into that spot, but Gary Baker's going to be a senior next year, so he's gone regardless if he's the number two guy. Uh, we've seen Gus Cumberlander in that spot as well. He's going to be a senior next year. and he's, Same with Sione Kava. Yeah, and same They're with Sione. seniors. And so you've got a lot of um, – Guys that could maybe be that guy for a season, but after that, you don't know. And so even though Oregon has uh, Keon Ware-Hudson and Suave Poti defensive tackles coming into the program, I think you need to add one more. You know, and you should mention really quick here that you look at the, the kind of the returning players, five of them are juniors on the defensive yeah. line. I mean, right now they're juniors, next year they're going to be seniors. You could, I mean, the 2020 recruiting class is either going to be like all defensive linemen, or you're going to have to add a couple of guys this year, I think, to, to balance that out. And certainly, I, I agree. You like the guys you have, but a player like Christian Williams, who I know we, has been spoken about on the site, is probably someone that kind of gets you, uh, you kind of pop your eyes pop a little bit if you watch his tape, because he could fit in really nicely as a possible nose guard um, at Oregon. So. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the one spot. I also think you probably, if you can find a really good receiver, you take him. If you can only find, if you can't get one of those top guys, you'd probably just move on because they, they will have enough depth on the roster. But um, it'll be interesting to see. It's going to be because of the new early signing day, the spring signing day, or the normal, whatever you want to call it, the normal signing day, is now lost a lot of its excitement in last year. And that's sort of a bummer, but at the same time, all the kids are signing in December. You can't really blame them because that's what the schools want. Yeah. Uh, Ducks have... Five defensive linemen signed. A sixth uh, in Isaac Townsend, but he's going to be linebacker. play linebacker for Oregon. Uh, so they have five guys signed right now. And like you said, they have five guys that are going to be gone after next season. So Six possibly if Scott goes. Yeah, so you need to find one more guy. And probably next season, too, in, in, in 2020, they're going to probably load up on defensive linemen yep. again as well. So uh, that's going to do it for us. Uh, for Eric Scopa and myself, you've been listening to the Duck Territory Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys.